For the week of September 13th, 2013, this is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, Senior Editor at Green Tech Media here in Washington, D.C. again this week. On uh, Friday the 13th, where it doesn't even look like the sun came up here this morning, just a dark, brooding day, hopefully not a sign of things to come. Um, also in Washington is Catherine Hamilton, the founder of 38 North Solutions. Catherine, how's it going? Are you a superstitious person? Of course not. I'm the optimist, and I'm just glad to be back home from San, a great uh, conference in San Jose. So you're not podcasting with like a ring of garlic around your neck today or anything? No, Stephen, that's for vampires. <laughs> and uh, in New York City is Jigger Shaw, author of the upcoming book, Creating Climate Wealth. Jigger, what's new and notable this week? You know, I have to say that um, last night when I landed in New York, there was a uh, a big like you know storm that I missed by 10 minutes. So I actually think that I'm um, lucky today. All right. Well, speaking of extreme weather, we're going to talk about climate change today. Uh, this week saw a flurry of really excellent articles on the climate movement's influence on politics, both what it's doing right and what it's doing wrong. And in today's show, we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation about the battle over the Keystone Pipeline, um, what the various thought leaders and ongoing campaigns are doing, and ask whether environmental groups are actually succeeding in their actions and messaging. And then we'll go into something a little bit more wonky and talk about Ron Bins, Obama's choice for chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, just like they did with Gina McCarthy, the new EPA administrator, Republicans in the Senate are delaying a vote on Bins and launching a campaign against him, along with some other outside groups. So why is that? We'll look at Bins' record and ask what he would bring to the nation's top electricity regulatory agency. And then, of course, at the end of the show, we're going to tell you something you may not know. All right, on to the climate movement. So after failing to pass an important piece of climate legislation in 2010, environmentalists and climate campaigners sat back, stunned, trying to figure out where they failed. Was it just simple messaging? Was it a lack of leadership? Or was it a series of unfortunate political events that failed to get the cap-and-trade bill momentum in the Senate at the last minute? Uh, there were many reasons, and uh, people have talked a lot about what those reasons are. But out of that loss came a new, more combative force in climate campaigning, initially driven by people outside of Washington. This movement has been focused on two immediate goals, uh, one to fight the Keystone XL pipeline and use it to drum up activists and put pressure on the president, and two, to hit back against lawmakers who are denying the science of climate change. Uh, Ryan Lizza of The New Yorker wrote an amazing piece this week profiling the influence of billionaire Democrat Tom Steyer and activist Bill McKibben on the Keystone XL debate. And in Salon, social activist and writer Naomi Klein has an interview slamming big environmental groups for their messaging failures around climate. So what what do we think about this? Is it working? Let's start with The New Yorker piece and kind of tease out the fight around Keystone. Um, Jigger, what's your takeaway on... Uh, Liza's article, and more importantly, the effectiveness of choosing this pipeline as a rallying point for activists. Well, I think that the the first thing I'd like to contribute to this is is to try to put it in perspective for clean tech entrepreneurs, because I think that you know it's true that there's a lot of clean tech entrepreneurs who are not environmentalists, and there's a lot of environmentalists who aren't necessarily clean tech entrepreneurs, and so we're not one big movement, even though. A lot of the policy that we care about, whether it's the investment tax credit or the renewable 
portfolio standards at the state level were passed by environmental lobbying and muscle. And so that's why I care about these issues, because the environmental groups, for better or for worse, are the ones who are actually passing our legislation. It's not clean tech groups. I disagree with that. I think there's uh, there is definitely a split between people in the business community and people in the environmental movement, and they do have an important uh, synergistic relationship, um, and they, they help each other along in many ways. But I mean, the trade groups in Washington have been very effective in trying to get policy passed. For example, SIA helped get the eight-year ex- investment tax credit in to the stimulus bill at the last minute, and that wasn't the environmental groups. That was the, the trade groups. I, well, I think that's right. By, it, there are certainly examples of the clean tech trade associations working alone, but I think that there's more raw power in terms of uh, legal conservation voters who actually raises a lot of money for, for politicians' campaign races, et cetera, uh, where you don't really see a huge amount of political contributions from the clean tech community. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that raw yeah, political power is important. I would say on a important. lot of that clean energy legislation, the environmentalists are working hand in glove with the clean energy trades um, on the ground in D.C. Yeah, so what are you hearing from people in the business community, Catherine? Do they see the surge in this new climate movement helping or hurting their cause? Are they ambivalent? Do they think it offers them a new tool to work with? What do you hear? Yeah, it's really interesting. I work with a a lot of the new technology sectors like um, energy storage, demand response, those folks, and they realize that their offerings are are really good for the climate. Now, they have over the last few years, um, because of the way the GOP has just turned its back on the climate conversation altogether, they've definitely um, been nervous about mentioning climate solutions. But now they're actually very heartened. They're saying, yay, we can start talking about it again. We can start figuring out how do we message to the GOP in a way that's safe and that's okay to talk about climate. So I see on the business side more of an interest in being able to use uh, climate solutions uh, for their technologies. Yeah, and that's why. But that's why the Keystone Pipeline matters so much, right? Is so so the so when when Bill McKibben and others push the Keystone Pipeline, and in response, the president basically you know um, delayed the decision making. And then the president did a climate speech in June. You know, all of these things are interconnected, right? I mean, if if the president hadn't felt any pressure whatsoever on any issue for the climate, it's not clear he would have done the speech in June. I think that's absolutely correct. And that did come from the environmental movement and not necessarily the business community. I tend to see this through two lenses. So one is the movement building activism lens and the other is the clean tech business lens. And this has been an extraordinarily effective movement for activists. Uh, there's no doubt. I mean, so let's look at late 2010, early 2011. No one in the U.S. even knew what the Keystone Pipeline was. The, the politicos in Washington, the environmental groups, they were all regrouping after the death of the climate bill, trying to figure out what their messaging strategy was going to be, what their legislative strategy was going to be. And it was very fragmented. And then here come these native groups, the local landowners, the farmers, the the big activists like 350.org's Bill McKibben, and then eventually NASA's James Hansen. Um, they were all building this campaign against the pipeline that took people in Washington by surprise. And it was like, where did this come from? And, you know, their argument was simple. If we want to do something about climate change, 
We need to stop building new infrastructure to suck the dirtiest fossil fuels like tar sands out of the ground. And then it became this massive symbol for our inaction on climate change um, and created a villain and established something tangible for people to really to rally around. And, you know, the pipeline went from being a done deal in 2011 to being delayed at least until, until 2014. And, you know, there's a shot, there's a 50-50 shot of this being abandoned altogether. And then, of course, the president, um, who really didn't talk much about climate throughout the campaign, uh, he did here and there, mostly to college groups, to younger generations who say they care more about this, um, now all of a sudden has rolled out this aggressive climate campaign. And I would say that it has been the pressure of these environmental groups that really set this in motion. Now, yeah, and Stephen, I would just say, if I could just break in here, um, not all of these activist volunteers, and remember there's a huge groundswell of volunteers, that's what keeps the activist groups going. Um, I just met a guy who volunteers out in California. This, he was at an energy storage conference, and he's a Sierra, Sierra Club volunteer. He's retired. He's not just, I mean, everybody thinks it's just a bunch of aging hippies. Well, this guy was a dentist, and then he ran a hotel chain. He was a businessman. Um, and a lot of these folks are really sophisticated in their understanding of business and understanding issues. So it's not just that you rally a bunch of college kids that are interested, although that's super important. There are also a lot of very sophisticated business people who know how to think through issues who are part of the activist volunteer network. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And when I, I went to all these protests, I went, I was there when uh, many of the activists initially got arrested. There were over 1,200 over a few-day period of time who got arrested. Uh, I was there when they formed the ring around the White House and then um, had the the big rally last February. And, you know, I would go around and talk to folks for stories that I was writing, and I was really struck by the wide variety of people who were there, people from the Midwest, farmers who were worried about land rights, um, many, many religious leaders, interestingly enough, who saw climate change as a moral issue that they wanted to bring up. Uh, lots of mothers and fathers, uh, definitely lots of college kids. And I have to say, I was really struck by the diversity of people who were out there. And it really felt like a, a movement was building. Um, but that does bring me to my other point. Uh, I Honestly, when I talked to a lot of folks, I didn't see a ton of people in the clean tech industry there in a big way. And, uh, you know, I thought a lot about whether this has really, this movement has been separate from the clean tech industry or has helped it in a big way. Um, so while a lot of leaders in the clean tech industry got their start in the environmental movement, you know, w particularly the solar industry, which was, you know, very intricately linked early on. I think the business and environmental communities have been separated a lot in the political sphere. You know, this is my sense. I I'm not sure if that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing because they do have different messaging strategies. Um, and right now, at least in Washington, I mean, the clean energy industry is trying not to go in and ruffle too many feathers on on Capitol Hill and to be taken very seriously. And I think, you know, a lot of people have been critical of that. Um, but this is where the surge from activists actually did help the clean energy industry a little bit. So for so long, advocates were pushing this let's hold hands and all get along strategy focused on job creation and national security. And and um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that was working until people actually put a target on their back. Right. After Solyndra, after the lackluster performance in green jobs, the political situation turned hostile very quickly. And that caught a lot of people off guard. But at the same time, you had these activists 
who stood up and started flexing some serious muscle. And, uh, and over time, you know, I was actually covering both issues quite closely, the political issues around clean tech and then this movement. I think that you saw that this organizing embolden people to start pushing back. And then you saw trade organizations and companies start fighting for clean tech in, uh, in a more aggressive way. And I think the excitement around that movement building, while only a, you know, a piece of that picture did help stimulate that. So I, I, I thought that was very notable. Yeah, no, look, I, I think that the reason these stories matter is because people have to understand how they're interrelated, right? I mean, Tom Steyer spent $1.8 million supporting Ed Markey's campaign into the Senate when a lot of other folks didn't pony up real money, right? And, and, and he did actually, like, you know, go out on a limb on XL Pipeline, and then, you know, Ed Markey actually walked back his public sort of, you know, stature with Tom Steyer and sort of said, well, Tom's just a, you know, person that's sort of unrelated to me. Um, And so I I just think that we have this constant push and pull from the clean tech community where the clean tech community wants to be, you know, accepted into every single room um, in business. And so they don't want to be very negative on certain issues because they don't want to be disinvited to certain meetings. Um, but at the same time, it's important to note that, you know, the clean tech agenda would be nowhere if it wasn't for these activists. Yeah. And you know what's an interesting dynamic, uh, Jigger, is the Koch brothers. So the Koch brothers are going after, through all of their variety of organizations that they fund, including IER, going after anything that smacks of clean energy in any way. I was meeting with a company out in San Jose earlier this week. And they were being, they were under attack. And I said, you know, you're being attacked from the right. You better not be attacked from the left too. You better like shore up all of your relationships that you can, because if you don't engage, then you're not going to have anybody left who's going to be willing to fight for your technology. I think the clean tech movement also learned a lot from the American Petroleum Institute as well. This is an extraordinarily powerful force that represents the fossil fuel interests. They're really good at building relationships, really good at holding high-profile events, and really good at spending money and holding lawmakers accountable for the decisions they make around tax policy, for example, and you know keeping uh, tax rules in place that benefit the fossil fuel industries. So uh, the clean tech industry is is becoming more powerful because as we've discussed on the local level, we're starting to see more economic impact and businesses are standing up and fighting for the industry. Um, And on the national level, I see both lessons learned from the activist movement trying to put pressure on the president and Congress and on large fossil fuel organizations like API, which have been really, really effective at getting their message across. But the one thing we're going to fail at, when you look at Ryan Liz's article, the thing that struck me is that Tom Steyer was not willing to go negative, um, like the Club for Growth would. You know, I think that unless we start unseating Democrats who are against us and promoting Republicans who are for us, this whole strategy is not going to work. This notion that we can only just support our friends but not, not actually destroy our enemies, is, it's just not going to work. Yeah, so I agree with that. And then that begs the question, is someone like Tom Steyer, this California billionaire who's set a lot of money into this, is he doing this, you know, would he be willing to put in money for Republican candidates who are standing up for the cause? Or is he just another extension of the Democratic machine? We have yet to see that. And 
I agree with you in theory, Jigger. I would love to see this movement actually back candidates on the right that are uh, more favorable to these policies. Um, However, you know, as we know, on the national level, there really aren't that many people on the right who are willing to either stand up or who even come close to agreeing with the um, the, the tactics of the the this climate movement. So no, but I'm I'm more yeah, interested. Yeah, it in used hurting. to be sorry. It used to be okay um, for Republicans to support these issues. I mean, LCV's model works, where you actually just count what people vote for, and then it doesn't matter what party it is. So Sherry Bullard from upstate New York was a Republican. He always got like a perfect score from LCV because he cared about these issues. And yet he was a Republican. He was in leadership. Um, and I, I think that model works. Right. But I, but I guess what I'm saying is more nuanced than that. I think that there are vulnerable Democrats that we could beat in the primary who are cold Democrats. And we need to do that. We actually have to primary out cold Democrats. And we're not going to do it because Tom Steyer desperately wants to be governor of California, and he's not going to cross the Democratic Party. Yeah, but that's easy for us to say sitting here talking around a table. But the re- the political realities are that those coal state Democrats are the closest thing to an ally that people have. You either have the the very conservative coal state Democrat, or you have someone who is going to dig their heels in entirely and not move on the issue at all. So, uh, I mean, Again, in theory, I would love for much of this money to be used to support Republican candidates that are supportive of these causes um, and and can really bring up interesting ideas on the right that can help solve these challenges. But I just don't see an alternative to some of these, say, coal state Democrats that may be more conservative. You're being too practical. Yeah, and in the House, we need more of those guys. I think it works better in the House than in the Senate, because the last thing you want to do is lose, um, have the Senate flip. And so you need to hold on even when you have folks like Manchin, you need to hold on to them because they are going to vote the right way with Reed in a number of ways. I think you guys are being way too practical. If you study, <laughs> if you study the reason why Club for Growth is so powerful, Club for Growth is powerful because they actually destroyed moderate Republicans in primaries. And when you think about how much money they've spent, Club for Growth spends less than $4 million a year. They are not powerful. They're not large. So they are powerful, but they're not large in terms of dollars. The reason that they're so powerful is because they take vulnerable Republicans who are, you know, like are willing to, go re- to vote for tax increases, and they make sure that they actually feel pressure during their primaries. And I think if, if the Democrats like Joe Manchin felt pressure to actually like, you know, make sure that that he, um, you know, he he kept his his seat. You'd, you'd see him vote um, in line a lot uh, more. Well, uh, yeah, you need the Grover Norquist for the D's. You have to sign yeah. a pledge or, or for any party, but sign a pledge the way Grover has made those guys sign. Yeah. People are talking about this in the environmental movement. People are definitely throwing around this idea. How do we hold... Uh, lawmakers accountable in the same way that Americans for Prosperity, Club for Growth, and these other very influential Tea Party, um, very right-wing organizations have done for lawmakers on the right. Um, Interestingly, you know, I came from the Center for American Progress, and I I think that the organization is doing really 
good stuff um, in trying to raise awareness about climate change and doing a lot and working with lawmakers and so forth. And of course, Tom Steyer is working very closely with John Podesta, the uh, founder and former president of Center for American Progress. And what's interesting is that although people are looking to someone like Tom Steyer, who has the money, who can potentially help create that movement, just like the Koch brothers did to help the Tea Party, you know, this is the problem with, with the left, though. I mean, when I was at CAP and worked with a lot of other political organizations in Washington, many people are so afraid of getting potential allies on the Hill uh, out of Congress, that they're really not willing to rock the boat in a big way. So yes, they're calling out climate deniers on the right, um, but there just doesn't seem to be the appetite to call people out on the left in the same way that the Tea Party has done. Uh, I think that's an interesting thing to keep in mind, that the left just doesn't have the mechanizations in place to do what the Tea Party did in the last few years. They just don't have the balls to do it. I mean, look at Francis. <laughs> Bein- look, I mean, Francis Beinecke is very clear at NRDC that all she wants to do is elect Democrats. She is not an environmental organization. She makes it very clear in all of her fundraising pitches that she wants to elect Democrats. That she thinks that the way to help the environmental movement is to elect Democrats. And I think Tom Steyer is in the same place. When you look at John Podesta and the, the advisors he has around him, he is not trying to win on the environment. He is trying to elect Democrats who he thinks will help him on the environment. And that didn't get us anywhere when we had the 60-vote supermajority in, uh, in the Senate in, in 2009 and, and 2010. There, there were a lot more issues um, at stake there, including the economy. And, th- and that played – that cut a lot of different ways in, a different, in different parts of, of the country. So th- it just – that was a different dynamic where there were really solid progressives who couldn't vote for certain things um, because people were being laid off right and left in their states. Right. But do you think that the, w- the way for the environmental movement to get their mojo back is to elect Democrats? I mean, the thing is that the Republican Party has gotten so far to the right that you've got Harry Reid calling them anarchists. I mean, the, it is not like the left has move, moved further left as the right has moved further right. It hasn't. It's like everything is shifting right. So, the, you know, the, the parties have changed so much in their makeup. It's, you know, how, how would you we want to place a safe place for Republicans? But how do you do that? Well, I mean, look, I, I think that when you when you read Ryan Lizzo's piece, I think Part of what he talks about, which I think, you know, transitions into Naomi Klein's piece, is that for a very long time, we have been very intellectual about these issues. And we have said, if we bring, you know, Jim Rogers, who really loves burning coal, with, you know, Jeff Immelt, who really has technology solutions to sell it and put it under the U.S. cap umbrella, and we really put the chess pieces together, we're going to get a deal. And I think what we've learned in the last two years is that you don't get a deal unless people really feel pressure. And so we we forgot to invest in our grassroots movement building, and that's what we're building right now in 2011, 2012, and now going into 2013. And once we've done a good job of really building that power base at the grassroots level, I think we'll have a shot again at national legislation. Yeah, and I think it was really hard for folks to visually focus. Keystone is something you can visually focus on as an organizing tool. I think during the cap and trade conversations, it was hard to get the public involved because there was nothing to look at. Now with these storms, you know, there are things we can look at and say that is climate. That is what we need to do something about. And and that's starting to rally people and you get an audience response. Yeah, I think that's 
That's the lesson here for me. We can sit here and have an academic debate about the math around carbon emissions and whether or not Keystone XL would put a huge dent in global carbon emissions, but that's only part of the issue. It, It is a major symbol that has energized the environmental movement in a way that it has not seen in many, many years. And so that is the big takeaway for me. Interestingly, many of the big environmental groups came late to this. Um, They have been very active in the movement in recent years, but this did come from a lot of local organizations that were talking about the Keystone XL pipeline in the U.S. and in Canada for many years. And then all of a sudden, 350.org, Credo Action, and some other groups started talking about it in a big way. And then then many of the Washington-based large environmental groups got on board. And, and that actually brings us to our the second piece of our conversation, which is this piece from Naomi Klein, uh, the social activist and author, who wrote a couple of years ago this really interesting piece in The Nation about why she thinks big green groups have actually been damaging to the climate cause. And she had another interview in Salon this week about uh, her new book on climate change and new film. And she said, that uh, environmental groups were perhaps worse than climate deniers for their failure to reframe the debate around capitalism and this paradigm of constant growth. And she says that by not pushing back hard enough against this capitalistic narrative that demands ever constant growth and more resource depletion, enviros haven't accomplished much. Uh, What are your thoughts on Naomi Klein's uh, argument, given what we've talked about, their relationship with this emerging climate movement and their messaging around this broadly? Well, I mean, I've already been on the record, you know, saying almost exactly what she said, um, you know, on this. I I think that there's certainly nuances that she goes through that I don't agree with her on. But I think that, you know, fundamentally, um, environmental groups got in, the big environmental groups got into bed with large corporations, and they shouldn't have. They should have always been separate from large corporations and used them as unlikely bedfellows for certain issues, but they increasingly in 2000 started using them for major amounts of money to be, you know, to help their, their campaigns and to fundraise. And, um, and, you know, they've been co-opted by them because of it. But Jigger, you're just about to publish a book called Creating Climate Wealth, and I can't wait to read it. But, I mean, isn't the premise that corporations should care and should want to create wealth by solving climate change. And in that situation, you want corporations to really care about the same things that environmentalists care about. That's exactly what I was going to ask. Yeah, look, I do. But but the thing that you have, you have to separate yourselves between startup companies and large corporations. Apple under Steve Jobs was one of the only corporations that I know of that took a huge bet where they took a disruptive technology and cannibalize their own sales, right? When they came out with the iPhone, they destroyed sales of the iPod on purpose. But you're not going to get Duke Energy to say, sure, we would love to actually promote renewable energy and everything else and, and, and reduce the economics of our existing strain at cost. In the same way that you're not going to get General Electric to say, yeah, this eco-imagination stuff is awesome. We would love to sell 90% less gas engines. You know, the, the notion that these corporations, which are, have large entrenched businesses that focus on selling to the 73 largest corporations in the world that actually, or sorry, the 50 largest corporations in the world that, that emit 73% of annual carbon emissions, 
um, in favor of our technologies? No way. They want slow and steady wins the race. We've talked a lot about natural gas, and you have a lot of concerns about natural gas, but at the same time have been very supportive of the Pickens plan as well, which has been really driven by large corporate natural gas interests. And I think this comes to the kind of conflict we have in the environmental movement in that uh, we do want to see this level of disruption, but at the same time, many of us are advocating for the same solutions that drive those traditional corporate interests, as argued by Naomi Klein, that are causing the problem in the first place. How do we square that generally? Well, on the, on the Pickens plan specifically, the reason I'm so much in favor for it is because I think we need to end the hegemony of oil. And right now, I don't see electric vehicles ending the hegemony of oil as fast as I see natural gas doing that. But I think that you have to – I mean, look, I admit freely that I'm a, I'm a clean tech guy. I'm not an environmentalist. I mean, in the sense of like, you know, have, having worked for Greenpeace or Sierra Club or doing that work. Those guys, though, they have to come from a moral center. If, if you run a nonprofit and you have millions of supporters and you don't run from a moral center, but instead try to use all sorts of weird chess moves and figure out how to like actually like move certain pieces on the board. Oh, I'll give you my logo to like put on. Clorox bleach, and I'll figure out how to actually, like, you know, take a hundred million dollars from your hedge fund friends to, you know, to do the um, climate campaign like Fred Krupp did. At, at at some point, you lose your moral center, and that's where the climate movement was in 2010. It was cute and didn't have the grassroots support necessary to to help itself at the congressional district level. But now we're building back that grassroots support, which is the moral center. We're building it slowly. But we should not take that local power for granted in the future when we try to take big votes on the Hill. Without that local power, you cannot win. Yeah, and the interesting thing about the the local disputes at this moment is that you see a lot of folks in the Tea Party taking positions that are similar as the environmentalists because things are impacting them in real life, like fracking. Exactly. And yeah, you have to care about it or it just becomes an intellectual conversation that you don't have time to, to, to deal with if you're trying to get your kids to school and have a night job and buy groceries. Which brings us back to Keystone XL, which has been a tangible thing for people to rally around. And it was the first time that we, in you know, in recent years that we've rallied outside of this very uh, academic conversation around climate change and towards something that people could really think about in terms of local land rights, local water pollution, local politics, and and so forth. With that, I want to turn to our second topic, uh, which is Ron Bins, the nominee to run the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So I know that FERC is not as exciting as the politics around climate change, but Congress is doing its best to make it so. In recent weeks, Senate Republicans and leading conservative groups have lined up to denounce Obama's choice to run the leading energy regulatory agency, saying he's an activist devoted to killing the coal industry. So is he? What are we to make of these criticisms? And why have they chosen this fight? Uh, Catherine, why all the fuss around Ron Bins? 
It's hilarious to me because I've never heard of anybody care anything about the FERC commissioners. And we've had a bunch of commissioners that have been much more activists than Ron Benz would be. I mean, John Wellinghoff was a consumer advocate. He went to Antioch. I mean, this guy is is has been as activist as anybody could be in the FERC, but nobody's really cared. John Norris, if you listen to any of his speeches, he's a total climate advocate. Um, in fact, it's it's just interesting that they've seemed to contrive this around someone who's been a very thoughtful state regulator um, from Colorado. And yes, he has views about coal that may be um, oppositional to some of the Republican Party or some of the coal state guys. But I mean, that is nothing new in FERC. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that um, that this is not about Ron Bins. This is about John Wellinghoff. I think John has been one of the most effective FERC commissioners that we've had in a generation. And when you think about the legacy that he's going to leave um, in terms of forcing the independent system operators to allow demand response and load control to be used as a regular tool to actually uh, control the electricity grid, not as an emergency tool um, to only be used in emergency situations, as well as some of the other statements that, that John Wellinghoff has made in his tenure, I think the Republicans are really afraid of having another John Wellinghoff there. This also comes from a fear around the death of coal in this country as well. So when Bins was in Colorado, he helped transition old coal plants out and develop uh, regulatory policy to promote renewables uh, as a way to, to make up for those losses in old coal plants. And uh, as the coal industry digs in its heels and worries about the death of coal in this country, they see his experience in Colorado as yet another threat. Uh, and this just adds to the, the perceived or real picture within the Obama administration that the White House and the broader administration is uh, getting ready to completely shut down coal in this country. So again, I agree that it's not about bins. I don't necessarily agree that it's about Wellinghoff. I think it's the cumulative impact and fears within the coal industry that we have yet another person who has worked to transition away from coal. Yeah, it's interesting because I do follow FERC very closely. I work very closely with their staff in a lot of issues. Um, they're very thoughtful. They're uh, non-political. The, when, when they have decisions taken at the commissioner level, um, most of the time they are all in concert because they've been so thoughtful about building the record around issues. Now, Wellinghoff has definitely pushed them, but they all have. I mean, even the ones that are nominally re- that are Republicans on there have all been kind of work- working together on a lot of issues to try to tweak the markets because the markets do need to be opened up to allow for other technologies and and other characteristics of other technologies. It's, a, it's tech neutral, but, you know, characteristics that we haven't had on the grid, for example, like demand response and like energy storage. So let's open up those markets. And all of them have had open ears to those. I agree. I mean, Pat Wood was extraordinary as well as um, for a chair under, um, under George Bush. But I, I, but I do think that, you know, the broader lesson here for me is that, you know, these clean tech companies who are affected by all sorts of these federal policies should not, um, you know, should not think that they live in their own libertarian bubble. Um, they should understand that these types of decisions are important for them, and it's also important, you know, for for the president to finally pick good board members for TVA and for Bonneville Power Administration. Um, you know, he hasn't done anything 
to really, you know, open those guys up to innovation uh, during his administration. So I just think that there's a lot of these important decisions that the president can make that um, clean tech entrepreneurs should care about. Is there anything on FERC's plate right now that would be notable? I mean, nobody really ever pays attention to FERC except for when they issue maybe a big order, and even then it's super technocratic and only followed by wonks. Um, Is there anything of note coming up that bins might have a role in? Oh, there's something I'm following, (laughs) but it's it's. It's pretty techy, but it's about capacity markets. So there's going to be a big technical conference in a couple of weeks on capacity markets. And the the folks in the energy storage industry are really keen on making sure that they can participate, as all of the other folks are, too. The demand response people would care about being part of capacity. So that capacity is seen in a lot of different ways and opening it up to new technologies. So I think that's something that's uh, that's coming down the pike that's going to be pretty interesting. Yeah, I think the really big thing that, that I see coming down is um, – you know, Google, Bank of America, lots of other people have actually filed with the FERC to be, you know, considered a utility. Um, and with deregulated states around the country, a lot of these um, wind plants that don't have PPAs associated with them, many, many of them won't get PPAs um, just because the renewable portfolio standards are ahead of schedule in many states. Um, some of these large corporations are looking to sign PPAs with 100, 200 megawatt wind farms at very low prices in Kansas at let's 2.3 cents a kilowatt hour or something and then wheel that power all the way to California or other places um, if there's transmission capacity available, which there is in some cases, um, and to buy that power directly, right? And and I, so I think you're going to see almost 50,000 megawatts of wind and solar power being done that way over the next five years. Well, who would have thought FERC would be so exciting right now in the political sphere? Leave it to hey, Washington man, I've lawmakers. I've always thought FERC was exciting. Uh, yeah, that's why we love you. And uh, so let's wrap up the show now and tell our listeners something they don't know. Uh, Jigger, how about you? Well, you know, um, there was a series of articles that came out um, yesterday and the day before yesterday in the New York Times um, about uh, about energy access for the poor. And, um, and so I've been following this a lot. And what's interesting to me is that there's a lot of uh, movement on the Hill right now between – Republicans, actually, that are sort of leading this charge and Democrats are supporting them on figuring out how we use the assets of the U.S. government to promote technologies to help countries get off of their addiction to diesel fuel. Um, And they like it because it's cost effective, there's no subsidies required, and it is promoting American ingenuity. But I think that that you're going to see a tremendous amount of um, movement from Capitol Hill, actually, around how we organize the assets of the U.S. government to support countries, particularly in, in South America and in, in the Caribbean, uh, but also other places around the world to um, promote energy access without the use of diesel. So you actually think there's an appetite in Congress to support these programs? Yeah, I don't think it's new money as much as it's probably repurposing existing money within USAID and USTDA and um, XM and OPIC and other places to focus specifically on this issue, because most of those organizations are really focused on billion-dollar projects around the world. They have a really hard time supporting distributed energy, and I think the Republicans care a lot about getting them to shift their resources toward distributed energy. Catherine, over to you. Tell us something we don't know. Yeah, so I thought this was interesting. 
Um, in about 2000, when the Marcellus Shale was discovered, uh, Chesapeake Energy started buying drilling rights in upstate New York, and they bought 13,000 acres to for fracking um, in those counties. Well, they have recently, because of this New York State ban on fracking until 2015, they are walking away from that. They're walking away from 13,000 acres of drilling rights, which which I thought was really um, notable. It sounds like a big win for Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> yeah, well, this yeah, that's right. It's like this is how this is when activism meets business. Well, I'll finish up with mine. Um, I have a story up this week on a really cool new product from Opower called Behavioral Demand Response. And uh, a lot of people know Opower. It's this fast-growing efficiency company that uses behavioral science uh, or peer pressure, depending on how you look at it, to get people to reduce their energy use. And by sending out simple home energy reports comparing a homeowner's energy use to their neighbors, Opower finds that people actually cut their consumption. And the company's got relationships with 85 utilities and claims to have cut energy use by two terawatt hours over the last five years or so. So they're essentially taking this concept and applying it to residential demand response. And they analyze smart meter data and and issue individualized notices to customers about how they can reduce energy demand during peak times. And they're able to reach a much wider swath of people. So this summer, it worked with Baltimore Gas and Electric to issue simple notices to customers. uh, And the company didn't release exact results, but it says that if it scaled it to a national level, the program could bring a 20-fold increase in participation in traditional residential demand response and decrease the procured kilowatt cost by about 40%. So residential demand response has historically you know, suffered from really low participation. Um, it's, it, and if this can be scaled, it can have pretty huge implications for making homes into virtual power plants. So um, very nascent. It's the first time Opower has announced its results, and it was um, pretty secretive about exactly what those results are. But they've gained massive traction in the efficiency space so far in just a few short years. So I'm definitely paying attention to this new offering. And, you know, it could be fairly big for residential demand response if it stacks up like Opower claims. Yeah, that's interesting. And I wonder how those 85 utilities are going to respond. Well, it sounds like they're developing relationships with them already, but Opower wouldn't be upfront about which utilities it's going to roll it out to next. But uh, it's pretty scalable. It's pretty easy. And it it uses smart meter data in a way that utilities aren't using them currently. So this just shows that outside service providers are coming in and providing the value that utilities haven't quite found yet. All right. Well, that'll wrap up our show for this week. You can find links to the stories we cover on this podcast at our website, greentechmedia.com. And uh, hopefully by now you're a subscriber to the show. But if you're not, here's how to be one. Uh, Find our RSS feed, our SoundCloud feed, and our iTunes feed on the podcast page at greentechmedia.com. It's super easy to integrate into your favorite podcast service. And of course, if you like the show, spread the word. Tweet us, Facebook us, email us. Uh, send the word to your friends and colleagues. And we want to hear from you as well. So if you have ideas for the show, email me at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. Jigger Shaw, good conversation this week. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. And Catherine Hamilton, good stuff. Thanks very much. Thanks. Stay safe today, Stephen. Will do. 
With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, staying safe on this Friday the 13th. We are the Energy Gang. We'll catch you next time.